we're going to kick off episode 394 of Monster Kid Radio with the song The Man from LOX, the liquid oxygen theme. It's from the band The Atom Jacks. They're a surf band based out of Brighton in the UK, and this is from their self-titled EP, which you can find over at theatomjacks.bandcamp.com when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show. Now, just like last week, this week, I'm still not at MKR Central. So I'm recording this remotely from an undisclosed location, and I wanted to get the show out to you on time. So the audio quality, not quite the same. Might sound a little different. That's just because I'm recording, well, remotely, I guess, kind of, sort of. Anyway, that's not why you tuned into the show this week. The reason you tuned into the show this week is because we're talking about a really cool science fiction movie with a really cool science fiction guest anyway from disney indiana scott morris is joining the show this week to talk about the movie fantastic voyage and you have no idea how much i really really wanted to write some lyrics to rap over an instrumental from coolio's song fantastic voyage to introduce the show but then since it's scott's birthday this week i decided to give him the birthday present of me not trying to rap here on Monster Kid Radio. That's right. As of this recording, Scott is now the big 5-0. His birthday was November 7th. And I'm actually recording this right now on November 7th. The episode doesn't go out until November 8th. But that doesn't mean you can't hop online and send Scott a birthday message. He's on Facebook. He's real easy to find. Now, Birthday Boy and Birthday Boy's movie pick is not the only thing we're going to talk about in this episode of the show. Of course, Scott and I do talk a little bit about some Disney things as well, because he is one of the main men, I guess the only main man from Disney Indiana. But uh, we also talk a little bit about, just just briefly, about our upcoming Plan 9 by 9 podcast. We actually recorded our conversation before we launched everything proper with the episode zero and all that. So we talk a little bit about that as well. But Scott and I are not the only people talking on this show. We also have Ken. Kenny is sending in his famous Monsters of Filmland segment to tell us how Fantastic Voyage was represented in the iconic magazine. And Jeff, and I'm going to mispronounce your last name, dude. It occurred to me, every time I have you on the show, every time you do something, I call you Jeff Polier. But every time you call in, you say your name is Jeff Polier. And I owe you an apology, man. I'll try to get it right from now on. Jeff called in a weird Wednesday report from the Joy Cinema from a few weeks back, the movie that he went to go see. And, well, they can't all be winners, at least not for everybody. And I'll respond to that as well. That's all happening right after this. thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston's. Get out a last signal to Earth and we've landed! The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things. And the superior beings are apes. They build the cities, make the laws, the gods, and control the guns. 
that us, a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Pierre Boulle's finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. The world gone insane. An upside-down civilization that could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. You did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baboon! It's a madhouse! It's a madhouse! But it did not end here. It ended in an episode so unpredictable, so shocking. It made the horror which preceded it seem calm and gentle as a summer's night. A great many people worked long and hard to answer the question of what a civilization would be like where the evolutionary process had been reversed and apes were the superior species. Hundreds of technicians and the largest number of makeup artists ever assembled assisted the producers, the writers, the director, and the cast. Dr. Cornelius Roddy McDowell. Dr. Zira as played by Kim Hunter. Dr. Zayas is portrayed by Maurice Evans, and Nova by Linda Harrison. Now the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disquisition. You realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Eventually a kind of living death. Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Seemed like a good idea at the time. The white bigot was dying, and the black soul brother needed time to prove his innocence. More power to you, brother. I want to transplant my head on a healthy body. I think I like to donate my body to science after all. So they transplanted the white head onto the black body. Who would have suspected that neither would care for the idea too much? What are you guys doing to me? Shut up. Where's the rest of you? We are joined together temporarily. 
Williams, stop this car immediately. Why don't you shut up? Hey, that's telling man. I should have known your kind stick together. Will you please stop this infernal machine? Oh, just shut up. Help! Shut up. You, doctor? So far, so good. Then how about you taking old happy face off of here? Are you shooting at us? Man, this car's a real dud. Could I have a cigarette? Oh, sure, honey. Hey, man, are we smoking while I'm eating? You okay, Harry? Harry, take your head out the window and see if any more is coming. Ray Milland and Rosie Greer as The Thing with Two Heads. You get some sleep, baby. Why don't you stay here for a little while? It's no use, honey. Maybe when I get used to it. Now you know you got to go. Hi, Derek and the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Blair calling in with a Weird Wednesday report. It's actually been a few weeks since I've made it to Weird Wednesday uh, due to an important family birthday on one Wednesday and, of course, Halloween being on another Wednesday. I wasn't going to miss that uh, here at the Player Graveyard. But the last one I did go to was a few weeks ago, and it was 1966's The War of the Gargantuas. Um, it wasn't great. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's the kind of thing you expected to see on a Saturday afternoon when we were kids. Uh, it has exactly one white actor who looked like he was so bored. According to the IMDb trivia, uh, Russ Tamblin had to do uh, some dubbing over, and uh, that's the reason for the bored sounding performance. But I don't think that excuses it because he looks bored in every shot, and he's kind of this white know-it-all in the midst of this Japanese cast, and kind of insulting, I thought, you know, to to his castmates. Uh, he should not have been the lead. Uh, as far as the plot, uh, it's giant monster versus giant monster. One is kind of an offspring of the other. It reminded me a bit of the recent movie Rampage in that you have uh, one of the giant monsters that is friendly to the humans. One, the others are in opposition and trying to hurt them. But overall, I, I, frankly, I like Rampage a lot better than this. Uh, not only, you know, of course the official effects were better, but the story and acting were better too. The, the cast, such as Kumi Mizuno and Kenji Sahara, they were all fine. But again, the lead actor was just such a drag on this whole thing. I wouldn't really recommend this. I do know it's a sequel. I've never seen the original, or the, the one that precedes it. So maybe sometime I'll get a chance to do that. I am going to Weird Wednesday this week. I haven't actually looked up to see what it is, but you can bet I will be calling in with another Weird Wednesday report in the near future. I hope everyone had a great Halloween, and uh, that's it for now. Bye-bye. Hey, Jeff. Man, I'm sorry the movie didn't work for you. I personally kind of dig War of the Gargantuas. I like the kaiju element. The human element, yeah, especially when you compare it to the previous film, 
Frankenstein Conquered the World. Frankenstein Conquered the World is, in my mind, a superior film, partly because of the human element. Nick Adams is the American character in the film, as opposed to Russ Tamlin. And Nick Adams, I mean, you can't go wrong with Nick Adams. As far as War of the Gargantuas go, you know, like I said, I do like it. I just prefer the first film more. It's kind of sort of a sequel. Yeah, the connections are a little tenuous. So, yeah, listeners, if you haven't seen Frankenstein Conquers the World, you can still watch War of the Gargantuas and not be lost. Not not at all. And I would like to hear what your guys and gals' thoughts are on War of the Gargantuas, as well as Frankenstein Conquers the World. Do you agree with Jeff? Do you agree with me? What do you think of the first film? Should Jeff make it a point to go see Frankenstein Conquers the World? Let us know. Email us or give us a call and leave us a voicemail. I'll go over the contact information at the end of the show. Jeff, as always... Thank you so much for calling in these Weird Wednesday reports. I have missed you over the past couple of weeks, but I understand, man. It's October. Busy time of month for us monster kids. Look forward to hearing from you next time. Here are the seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror. A monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein conquers the world. Spreading panic as millions flee his vengeance. Frankenstein towering over cities, defying the force of armies, the might of navies, and the fury of jets. Frankenstein, a name never equaled in the annals of terror. Frankenstein conquers the world. Stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein, incarnate. With the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before. See Frankenstein Conquers the World, astounding on the giant screen, in color scope from American International Pictures. Ladies and gentlemen, here is an important message from Jack H. Harris, producer of 4D Man. Imagine a check for $1 million being made out to you. In my new film, you will see 4D Man perform feats never seen on the screen before. And if you, any one of you listening to me, can actually perform in real life the feats ascribed to 4D Man, $1 million in cash will be yours. Your admission ticket to see 4D Man in widescreen and color may be worth $1 million. 4D Man is the most amazing motion picture ever made. The story of one man who solved the mystery of the fourth dimension. Even in this century of wonders, when science holds nothing to be impossible, you'll gasp in awe at the feats of the 4D Man. In color, to thrill you as never before, 4D Man. M1 to ZK. Docking maneuver completed, link up accomplished successfully, starting rocket motors to continue flight. Over and out. Next step, Mars. 35 million miles away. Mission Mars. Three astronauts on a mission to the forbidden reaches of a red planet, defying the elements, inviting death and disaster. Darren McGavin, who gambled his life on a fantastic mission to a world no other living man had ever seen. Oh, darling, I'm so scared. Nick Adams, who shared the incredible odyssey. 
living an adventure beyond his wildest dreams. Mission Mars. They met their destiny on a planet that time forgot. An adventure that smashes the barriers of man's imagination. Watch out, the ball is opening! I didn't do this last month, so let's go ahead and do this now. We have several people who participate in the Patreon campaign, several patrons of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for supporting the show this way. If you don't support the show this way and you'd like to, you can always find it at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio or follow the link in the show notes. One of the rewards for supporting the show through Patreon at a particular level is that you get a shout out every month in our executive producer roll call. Monster Kid Radio is made possible due to the support of Ken Blows, Tammy Anschwitz, and I apologize if I got your last name wrong, Jeremy Lamastis, Steve Turek, Jeff Owens, Charles Babbage, Karen Joan Kahodic, Paul Curtis, Tracy and Birthday Boy Scott Morris, Jonathan Angarola, Jason Spear, Justin Giallo, Terry Mount from That's Terry Rithick, Thomas Broussard, James Smith, Daniel Cornell, and Mitch Gonzalez. Thank you for supporting the show at the Toho level. I really do appreciate it. And those of you who support Monster Kid Radio at the Hammer level or higher and have been waiting for that extra audio that I'm going to release through Patreon, that'll be coming up sometime next week as soon as I get back home to Monster Kid Radio Central. from space kills all dogs and cats on the earth. 1985, chimpanzees and gorillas are adopted as pets. The pets evolve into slaves, beaten and tortured victims of mankind. And now, a chimpanzee rises to give the word for the revolt of the apes. My people will plot for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is upon you now! Conquest, the planet of the apes. It's all new, the biggest and most exciting ape picture yet, as a world of apes battles for domination of planet Earth. The Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, from 20th Century Fox, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. The most awesome spectacle in the annals of science fiction. Shock. After shock. After shock. After shock. Warning. After shock. The sexual transformation of a man into a woman will actually take place before your very eyes in Dr. Jekyll. And Sister Hyde. A man by day. A woman by night. The perfect disguise to indulge a lust for sex and violence. Dr. Jekyll. And Sister Hyde. An American International Pictures release in color rated PG. Was he a woman? Was she a man? Or, or were they both? Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at the classic film Fantastic Voyage in Famous Monsters. 
This classic sci-fi film was featured in Famous Monsters number 43 from March of 1967. It consisted of four large pictures and this brief text. Fantastic Voyage has thrilled the nation, the world. Not since Columbus set sail for a new land unknown, such a voyage of danger and discovery. The editor of this magazine has already personally seen this great picture six times and purchased tickets for 60 friends. Robert Block liked it. All monster fandom has been talking for months about the boat ride through the bloodstream, the whirlpool of horror, the heart-stopping heart sequence, the breathtaking danger in the cavern of the winds, the lung pocket, the attack of the antibodies in the Erie Canal, the battle in the brain, the fear in the tear, and a score of more sights and sounds of mystery and terror unlike any ever encountered by human beings before. And so, because we know you'll want a permanent record of some of the outstanding moments of awe and wonder, fright and fantasy featured in Fantastic Voyage, on this and the following pages, we take you on a pictorial trip once again through the human body via the microscopic ship Proteus. We're sure you'll enjoy your microbes eye view. This article was repeated in the 1969 Famous Monsters yearbook and also in Famous Monsters 138. Fantastic Voyage was mentioned again in the article from FM99 Blobs, Brains and Other Gooey Objects by Thomas Rogers. This same article contained the movie from 2 weeks ago, The Vampire Bat. Here is what Mr. Rogers had to say about the film. Perhaps the most breathtaking imaginary trip ever filmed was Fantastic Voyage. This movie showed the adventures of a group of people who were shrunk to microscopic size and injected into a scientist's bloodstream. A prototype submarine was also diminished, along with a laser and other equipment. Their mission was to remove a blood clot from the man's brain, from the inside, of course. Twice during the course of the movie, the intruders, for that is just what they were in the body they entered, were chased by cute little white blood corpuscles. A bunch of the smart little devils played grabbies with Raquel Welch. But the jealous hero saved her from them. In a fit of rage, the floating masses of transparent ooze destroyed the intervenular vehicle, along with the villain Donald Pleasance. So that is how Fantastic Voyage was covered in Famous Monsters. It is obvious it was loved by editor Forey Ackerman, and the film stands up as a classic to this day. I haven't seen every movie out there. I know, I know, it sounds kind of crazy, but I haven't seen every classic or not so classic fantasy, science fiction, horror movie, whatever. There are some films out there that are iconic, are award winners, have a huge impact on pop culture. At least they did, and I haven't seen them. Planet of the Apes was one of those films that I hadn't seen, and this week's movie is another movie that I had not seen. And the minute this week's guest found out, he's like, "Dude, we got to talk about it." And that's not exactly the words he used because I don't think I've ever heard him call me "dude." But Scott Morris, welcome to the show. Good morning, dude. <laughs> Uh, it, it sounds so weird coming out of your mouth. Yes, yes, it does. It feels weird. <laughs> <laughs> Several years ago, maybe two, Scott was here in the Portland, Oregon area. We went to Mark Peterson's Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop. We were wandering around, looking around, and there was a Fantastic Voyage board game. Yeah, I believe so. And Scott made a comment on it, and I said I'd never seen it, and I saw the lights go on in his eyes. Like we got to talk about this movie, and so we jumped right on that two years later. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. And over the years, we've had people, or I've had people, come to me wanting to talk about this movie, but like I, you know, I just kind of stalled because I got to do it with Scott. I mean, he he kind of called dibs. 
this is a movie that I saw really young. I'm guessing on like a Saturday afternoon. I don't uh, remember exactly when I saw it and just thought it was amazing. I was drawn into this story right away and just really, really like this quite a bit. Really? Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll talk. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, yes. doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like a movie uh, probably an, an eight or nine year old would really like. But I've always been fascinated with the inside of the human body. I don't know why. And this movie just gives a, an idea, the whole thing right out there. And I was just drawn in. Did eight or nine-year-old Scott discover girls yet at this point? Because there's a lot of Raquel Walsh in a skin-tight <laughs> scuba diving suit. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just, just That was definitely part of it. But also, you know, when I was really young in elementary school, we had a student teacher one Halloween decided to play a radio play about people turning inside out when this fog touched them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And from that point on, I've always been fascinated with the inside of the body. Not, <laughs> not to the point where I wanted to be a doctor because it borders on for lack of a better term, ooky. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always been fascinated by it. Okay. Well, there is something very cool. Uh, and of course, the the idea of shrinking somebody down is a trope in a lot of these in a lot of science fiction. The Incredible Shrinking Man, Attack of the Puppet People, Inner Space, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I mean, it's all over, right? So I mean, Ant you Man. see this Ant Man, yeah, yeah. So it it is a trope. It is a thing, and to actually go inside the human body and do stuff is kind of cool. And we'll talk about that. You know, we'll, we'll talk about all that. But you know, that's something we got to do first. It's the classic five, man. I was going to say the last few episodes I've listened to, it's something that you've kind of like, oh, yeah, we need to do at the end. So I was just figuring that's what the format was now. But That's only when I forget. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so for new listeners, people who are just now joining us, classic five is a game that we play here on the show. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, yes or no style question about classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. Some call it a game. Some call it the conversation starter. We call it the classic five. Scott, are you ready to play? Okay, I am now. Okay. <laughs> card number one, and I don't mind pulling a card out of the Monster Batch exclusive deck because I know you've been there. Scott, who do you wish you could meet at Monster Bash? Who do I... Well, if it's if it's open like that, I mean, it doesn't say living or dead. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say Boris Karloff. Oh, wow. If Ron Adams could somehow get his hands <laughs> on the technology to make that happen, that'd be amazing. That would be amazing. Or Ed Wood. <laughs> is that a tease? Maybe. <laughs> is that is that a bit of foreshadowing? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got an offer for him. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Card number two, what's your favorite John Agar monster movie? Tarantula. But what if circumstances were to magnify one of them in size and strength? Took it out of its primitive world and turned it loose in ours. Then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth. Even science was stunned. The new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon. Instead, when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, 
man was confronted with his most shocking blunder. The isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. Above revenge, huh? Yeah. Oh, man, you really don't want to be my friend. Huh? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I like nah. tarantula better. Tarantula's good. Tarantula's good. <laughs> there are no wrong answers. No wrong answers. And they both have uh, Clint Eastwood. Okay. All right. Well, I'll give you that. All right. Card number three. Actually, this is going to come from core deck number two, which is in the works. Who else could have or should have played a mummy? Richard Keel. <laughs> yeah? Can you imagine that imposing figure dressed up in bandages? Uh, that'd be pretty cool. It's mostly depends on what kind of mummy you'd want to go for. Do you want the big hulking mummy or do you want like maybe the, the scarier slender kind of desiccated Doug Jones style kind of guy, you know, cause I'd go like Doug Jones or something like that. But yeah, Richard Keel, that, that'd be terrifying. And to see those metal teeth coming out of the uh, bandages would be really Scott. scary. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> All right. Card number four. <laughs> What Peter Cushing role could have or should have been played by Christopher Lee? There's no wrong answers, right? Correct. None. Oh, wow. Okay. Peter Cushing's the man. You can't replace him. Indeed. Good call. Okay. I forgive you for the tarantula thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the final question. Who was the most recent celebrity you saw at Monster Bash? Do you remember? You. Oh, come on now. <laughs> I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered, but okay. Hey, you you won an award, a major award. That puts you in the celebrity contest. I won a major award and my wife hasn't knocked it off the shelf yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a celebrity and I'm going to say you. Uh, well, okay. No, I really forgive you for the tarantula thing. <laughs> All right. Well, that was the classic five. You win and your prize is that you get to be on Monster Kid Radio this week. All right. <laughs> and I got to pick the movie. You are listening to the sound of a completely new screen experience. A startling new kind of excitement. As 20th Century Fox plunges you into the most incredible adventure that man could ever achieve. To make a motion picture that crosses a new frontier may seem impossible today. Outer space. The depths of the sea the bowels of the earth, the past, the future, all have been subjects for the camera. But now, a film called Fantastic Voyage has broken through in an unexpected direction to create an adventure of astonishing suspense and beauty. One of the miracles of the universe. Its vital new story sweeps down from the sky. Then, it drops the bottom out of the world you know and understand as a beleaguered nation desperate for survival launches a journey you can never erase from your memory. We need you for security purposes, Mr. Grant. They know they failed to kill Banish. Security thinks they'll try again, first chance they get. A woman has no place on a mission I of this insist time. on taking my technician. You'll take along who I assign. Don't tell me who I'm going to work with. Four men and a beautiful girl, off on a fantastic voyage, 
actually entering inside the human body, exploring an unknown universe, unknown dangers. They're tightening. I can't breathe. 24 seconds left. After that, you're in danger of attack. Come on. It's sheer suicide for all of us. You are there with them, sharing a breakthrough in motion picture. We're talking about, like we said at the beginning of this, Fantastic Voyage, which came out when? 1966. Okay. Okay. It feels like a late 60s science fiction movie. It actually feels like an early 70s science fiction movie to me. It feels a little ahead of its time. Oh, definitely. It, it definitely has that feel. Uh, I was also, while watching it, rewatching it again, not necessarily getting story similar, but also I got that Planet of the Apes vibe just with the, the, the filming techniques and the look of the film. And, and I don't know what I mean by that, but other than <laughs> it's just a movie of that time, that same time. This is what I'm going to say, but I don't know what I mean by, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, no, it, it does have kind of the pacing of like a, a late 60s, early 70s sci-fi film. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, Scott. This is a first time viewing. And I was a little bored with the beginning. Now, don't turn off your podcast <laughs> and Scott, please keep being my friend. But I was a little bored with it because I felt like I was in the mood to watch a 60s science fiction movie. And here is this stark not quite 60s sci-fi opening for the first half hour. Is there even any music being played? It is a, a very stark, straight, almost documentary-style approach. Now, as the movie continued, I eventually kind of got over that and really started enjoying it. That was actually a choice. Yeah, oh, I'm sure it had to have been. Yeah, they didn't really kick in any kind of score until they're injected into the body. There's a little bit of sound effect over the there's, opening titles. There's sound the effects, episode. but that's not really music. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first couple times I saw this movie, I was right there with you. And then as I got older and I watched what it was for, I kind of am fascinated with the whole Cold War angle. Mm -hmm. I've always, that's another thing that's always fascinated me, the, uh, the Cold War uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, that kind of stuff. That's kind of a sweet spot for you. Yes. I mean, you really enjoy that. You know, I was expecting the first time that, it, you know, I'd heard about it and I, and I sought it out to see, I thought we were going to spend the whole movie in the body. I thought that's, you know, we're going to maybe have five minutes at the beginning. We're going to see them get shrunk, injected, and then go. But this whole setup of why they're having to save this guy, why they can't do a traditional surgery, and the fact that it's, Cold War type stuff, plus the fact that it actually ties in with the miniaturization process. Now I think it's it's fascinating. But yeah, I, I thought it was a little boring the first time I saw it. Yeah, and I think that may have colored my opinion of it as I was starting the film. Now, like I said, eventually I kind of warmed up to it, and I and I got it at that point. Um, it, it truly is a voyage. Uh, it's not a traditional, you know, kind of good guy bad guy science fiction film. There is that element towards the end, especially when it starts to really kick in. But overall, it, it really is a voyage. We're just on a trip that happens to go inside the human body. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of cool. So when was the first time you saw this? It was probably a, a Saturday or Sunday afternoon on the local TV. I mean, one of the things I did when I was young is we'd get the newspaper and I would always look to see what 
um, the Saturday afternoon movies were going to be or the late Saturday movies. And when I saw Fantastic Voyage listed and then what it was about, I, I definitely wanted to see it. I, I can vividly remember the first time I saw it listed, it was going to be like at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. And oh. it was during during school year, and I was like, there's no way I can watch that. But then a few months later, I saw it pop up again on a Saturday afternoon, and I made sure that I was going to not have anything else to do. I had all my chores done, homework done, and everything, so I could sit down and watch it. Just because of the description in the in the newspaper excited me. But I can't. I don't remember exactly when that was. Okay, okay. Well, the first time I watched it was last night. So, <laughs> And I've watched it several <laughs> times since then. Do you own it on disc or anything? Or? I have it on Blu-ray. How's the Blu-ray look? Blu-ray looks really good. Yeah, they do anything fancy with it? There's a few extra special things. Uh, there's also a audio commentary with a uh, film historian and music historian. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I actually watched it twice yesterday, once straight and once with the audio commentary. What I found it very interesting about this is I, even though I hadn't seen it, I, I kind of knew the basics. I, I knew that people get shrunk down into a little submarine and it goes inside the human body to fix something. And along the way we have this fantastic voyage where we kind of discover the human body. And I guess this film was even shown at some medical schools at one point Yep. to kind of give people an idea as to what, you know, so that tells me that, at some point, somebody thought they did, the, and maybe they did, I don't know, but somebody thought they did the research to make it look as realistic as possible. They had uh, some surgeons and some doctors they talked to when they designed the set pieces. Okay. But I think I still think they probably took a lot of liberties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the story's a lot more than that, though. Like you said, there's this element of Cold War espionage kind of laid on top of everything, and obviously— there are spoilers, so. Yeah, what fascinates me with the Cold War tie-in is not only it's, it's that, because in this movie, both the U.S. and the Soviets, even though they're always called the other side, they're never called the Soviets. Good point. Good ha point. Have this miniaturization process. But the flaw in the process is it can only last 60 minutes. And a Soviet scientist figures out how to make it last for as long as they need it to last. But instead of giving it to his superiors, he tries to defect to the U.S. And an assassination attempt leads to having to do this surgery. But I thought it was really cool that they actually tie it into the miniaturization process. It's not just a uh, somebody from the other side trying to defect to the U.S. because he's got some sort of dirt on somebody. They put some thought into, okay, let's tie it to the whole process. And that, I thought that was cool. It is really neat, and I found it interesting that the miniaturization process, while it is something that as an audience we're like, what? Wow, that's cool. There seems to be a level of, yeah, you know, it's the miniaturization process. Oh, okay, fine. Moving on. Let me get a cup of coffee. There's not a lot of, oh my gosh, this is, you know, uh, fanfare around it. It's just a thing. And sure, it, it's kind of interesting that it can go a little bit longer than 60, set, you know, 60 minutes with the Soviet stuff, but it's just kind of a thing. And I appreciated that. Well, what I liked is it's such a thing that we have an entire division of miniaturization process. And they give the audience point of view when they bring Grant in. Because Grant is a security specialist. He helped get this defector into the country and 
he he finishes his job. He turns it over to the authority. He turns the guy over, and so he goes home. And then the assassination attempt happens. So then they bring him in to be part of this crew that's going to be injected in because they're worried there's going to be somebody in the crew that's going to try something. So he is our point of view learning about this whole process, the fact that exists and what they have to do. And, you know, there's several comments that he makes, like he doesn't want to do it and says, we can shrink you for an hour. I don't want to be shrunk at all. Right. (laughs) And uh, Grant's played by Stephen Boyd. Uh, who was one of the early choices for James Bond in Dr. No. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. I suppose I could see that. Yeah, I could see it too. He's, I, I believe he's from Scotland originally. Wasn't, wasn't James Bond Scottish? Uh, Northern Ireland is where he's from. Oh, so I just offended everybody there. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I did too, up. because I, I, I had to double check. But yeah, he was up for the role for Dr. No to, to be James Bond. Wow. Huh. But I, I think he's really good in this movie. I, I like his role quite a bit. And that is the second time James Bond has come up in this episode. It won't be the last, I'm sure. <laughs> Scott is a huge Bond fan, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. I've been I've been playing the new Forza Horizon with the James Bond pack, so I've been driving all the Bonds cars. You know, <laughs> maybe we should launch a Kickstarter to launch that James Bond podcast we've been talking about. Hey, I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if our wives would. My no, wife would. I'm sure they wouldn't. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, another hint at something else. Oh, man. And the funny thing is, it's all this stuff that we're kind of hinting about. This episode will actually be coming out after episode zero of that one, Will. So. Yes. And it's already public knowledge now when yeah. we're recording this. Yeah. It's not like, yeah. Anyway. Uh, I totally lost my train of thought where I was going to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were talking about how... Grant is kind of the public's or the audience's view of learning about the miniaturization process. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I do, like I said, I I really appreciate the, oh, it's just a thing that they happen to do and happen to have access to. They have a whole division. They have a whole lab. They have a whole process, you know, a a protocol, procedure, steps they go through with that zero, what they call the zero platform. All of that. It's all kind of textbook to them and there's no boy golly this is fascinating kind of stuff you know it gives us as an audience an opportunity to kind of get over the big leap in logic here the the leap in realism so that we can enjoy the ride the voyage that we're going to go on and i i appreciated that i thought it was smart filmmaking the one thing as i watch this movie over and over again this whole part where they're laying out how it works and everything and you say it's it's by the numbers they're so used to it I want to know what they use it for because <laughs> yeah, that's you, only, true. you only have an hour. The miniaturization process only lasts an hour. So what are they using? It's not like they can, you know, if this is their only lab and they don't mention that if there's other labs, but they do the miniaturization here and it's that whole room that it takes to miniaturize something. It's not like we could go to the other side if, if it is indeed Russia in an hour. So what do they use it for? That's a good point. It's a good point. What what would they use it for? Do they use it to go inside people, or or is it something completely? Yeah, they huh. never mention. What would you use it for, Scott? Well, the the only thing I could think of is if you were basically what Ant Man does when he goes inside Tony Stark's armor. If you want to see how something is built, something that's small, maybe you know a Japanese transistor or something, you could send a technician in and and look at it without having to take it all apart. 
But okay. I, I really can't think of a, a viable use for this other than what they use it for in the movie. Surgery. Surgery. Now, if you could, if it could last longer, then I could under, I could see some of the, the war possibilities and espionage and that kind of stuff. But with the hour restriction, I don't know if the United States would spend as much money to build this huge lab and underground facility that they've got. Hmm. There is a novelization. Have you read it or anything? I have not read it. Uh, I okay. do want to read it now. It's Asimov, isn't it? Yes. He wrote the um, novelization. Plus, he had some issues with this movie, and he's changed the story in a couple places because of some issues he had. Plus, he wrote a sequel. That's not Technically, it's not a sequel. It's called Fantastic Voyage 2 Journey to the Brain, or Destination Brain. That's what it's called. Don't they go to the brain in this cell? They do. But the the sequel book, sequel retelling, is basically the Russians have developed the miniaturization process, but it's so expensive that nobody can actually really use it. Mm. And then there's this American scientist. No, no, he's another Russian scientist that comes up with an idea of how to do it cheaply. But he's in a coma. So there's an American scientist who is researching how to read the brain electronically to read thoughts and uh, dreams and memories and everything. So the Russians have him come over, join four Soviet uh, scientists, get injected into the guy that's in a coma. And their job is to get to the brain and basically read it to try to find out the secrets to how to do the miniaturization process cheaply. Okay. <laughs> I kind of want to read that too. I found a couple used copies of that on Amazon for 60 cents. Oh, well then, yeah. <laughs> and that one was huh. written by Asimov as well. Okay. Okay. If we go through some of the story points, I'll, I'll point out what problems Asimov had with the story. Well, I want to post this to the listeners um, before we move on. What would you do with it? What would you use the miniaturization process for? That's what I want to know. So, yeah, I do want to open that up to the listeners and see what they think. You know, give me some cool ideas. <laughs> yeah, I would be interested to see what listeners come up with as well. Yeah. And you got to remember, it's not something you can do by yourself. You're going to have to have a whole team of scientists behind you and monitoring you and everything. So it's not. Right. You can't like rob a bank and you'll go into a, a vault and manipulate the tumblers from the inside. Unless right. you're going to pay a whole lot of people to help. <laughs> right. And have the facility and have all you know, the tech. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's not something you're doing solo. You're not, you're not pulling an Ant-Man here. Exactly. You got to have a whole team that you can only communicate with, with like pops and clicks because for some reason or other, they can't transmit their voices. Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> they're, they're doing Morse code, but why aren't they talking? But oh, well. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do understand. I mean, they do kind of sort of show that sound can be an issue but not really so that's in there to give uh james brolin something to do well because <laughs> <laughs> he reads the everything that comes in well and to kind of get ahead of things a little bit here too i did like the uh oh somebody dropped something and sent all these shockwaves through the yeah. yeah i thought that was kind of a neat a neat little thing to throw in and and made sense to me so yeah, that that is a cool. Scene. Uh, at first, though, I was wondering what what are they doing? Why are they showing a close up of this person's towel? What what what's about to happen here? I don't understand. Oh, okay, yeah, that could be a problem. So I thought again, clever filmmaking, you know, all the way around. Overall, I thought it was pretty smart. 
as far as the actual story itself and kind of breaking down the plot, you know, unless it's something that's really super obscure, like the hand of night, which we did not too long ago. I don't like to do a huge plot breakdown. That said, is there really a huge plot to break down? No, I don't think there is. No, basically the guy got injured during assassination attempt. He's got a blood clot, but it's in, in the brain. It can't be operated on. So they inject, the surgeons and a submarine down in uh, microscopic size inject them into the body, and their mission is to get to the brain to fix this tumor. Tumor or blood, blood clot? clot? Blood clot. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I want to make sure I didn't miss something. Yep. Blood clot. <laughs> yeah. So they have to go in and they fix the. Uh, <laughs> it's not the tumor. <laughs> they have to go in and fix the uh, the blood clot, and they do it with uh, a laser. A laser. A sexist, somebody who may not be uh, on the up and up. There's a lot of sexism in yes, here, there, man. Yes, Especially a woman. We're not taking a woman down here, are we? <laughs> Come on. And what a woman. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got to address the elephant in the room. Raquel Welch. Beautiful Raquel Welch. A beautiful elephant? <laughs> what, 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 what is happening here? Um, there is a moment in the film where she gets covered by these antibodies. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to you. Did you read the backstory of this scene? I did. I did. And um, that's what I'm laughing at. So she gets attacked by these antibodies because she gets stuck in some fibers somewhere in the body, and the body in the ear is trying to react and protect and views Raquel Welch as a intruder, an invasive bacteria or whatever. And the the antibodies wrap all over her body, and they bring her on board to. To pull the antibodies off. Yeah, because they're basically suffocating her. She can't breathe. Yeah. And according to what I read, the first time they shot the scene, everybody was a was a gentleman and purposely did not grab any of the antibodies off of her chest because they didn't want to you know, grope her or cop a feel. And you got to remember, though, she's wearing a skin-tight yeah. diving suit at this, at this point. And the director wasn't overly happy about that because it ended up looking like, what do you say? Like a Vegas showgirl kind of scenario (laughs) where she's wearing this, like this top. Yeah. So they had to go in and kind of choreograph the whole thing. No, no, no. You forgot the first, he, he told them you need to get them off of her chest as well. So they re they shot it and that's all the guys went for the second time. (laughs) Oh no, really? I didn't catch (laughs) that. Yeah. The second time they all went, that's where they first went. And at that point, the director realized, I need to choreograph where they go. (laughs) Man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what we finally saw doesn't look that bad. (laughs) No, it was the third, the third shot. Um, But yeah, I mean, the the story is pretty basic. Uh, Like I was saying, and like Scott was saying, it's pretty simple. There's not a very deep kind of plot here. It's. They go inside the body to fix it. About halfway through, don't they start bringing in the idea of maybe somebody's trying to sabotage it from the inside? Well, that's the reason they bring Grant on to begin with. Uh, They pull him aside before the whole miniaturization process. The general basically tells him why he's there. They're worried. Uh, This one specialist brain surgeon, he's kind of done his own thing all his life. That's the impression I got. And he's already demanded that his female technician go with him. So they're a little worried that he's going to somehow sabotage the mission. Donald Pleasant's character is Dr. Michaels. 
Uh, huh. I got the impression wait, wait, that wait, wait, Fusil- Okay, hold on a second. I knew this. I mean, I watched the movie and I heard the name, but it just now is clicking with me. His name is Dr. Michaels. Yes. Donald, yes, it is. I'm going to hunt Michael Myers and my future yes, career is. is named. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I. Okay. Yep. <laughs> but Dr. Michaels is concerned that uh, Dr. Duvall is going to sabotage the mission. So he suggests that they bring along a security person, and that's why Grant has to go. Okay. So that that gets set up early in the movie that there might be a saboteur aboard. And they do mention that, but I feel like they don't really do much with it. Not for a while, no. Yeah, for a big chunk when things start to kind of go pear-shaped. And nothing too big. It's nothing that's going to endanger the safety of anybody on board but it is going to jeopardize the mission yes things like running out of air things like the laser not working that sort of thing yeah it's obvious the saboteur at first is wanting to sabotage the mission but not i mean he's the only person he wants to die is the patient right it's not a suicide mission right i was real curious about donald pleasance's uh presence the entire time because he freaks out at the very beginning of the whole thing. Right. And I, he's claustrophobic. Claustrophobia. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell if that was set up or not, like a setup or not. You know what I mean? Like, did he really feel that way or was he just trying to work his way in? As they're getting ready to leave or actually getting ready to be shrunk, he excuses himself at one point and says, I need to take care of something in the back. And he goes back into the lab area where the laser is. After it's been, and then he comes back and then later you find out that the laser wasn't secured and broke. So there's that red flag as well. I mean, they were really trying, I think the story was really trying to set up Dr. Duvall as the bad guy when they really were throwing out, no, it's not, it's Dr. Michaels. And spoiler, it is Dr. Michaels. <laughs> it is Dr. Michaels. Because, of course, Donald Pleasance is sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> because of all of them, for whatever reason, he just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, we've got these rugged American, handsome-looking people, you know, and Dr. Michaels. There's just something I – mean, he doesn't fit. He seems kind of sniveling. And, uh, of course, it's him. One of the things I found interesting, if you go back to the whole Cold War yeah. mentality, and if you – substitute the other side with the Russians. You've got the Americans who uh, have always been portrayed as more religious than the Russians. And there's several times where Grant and Dr. Duvall are bringing up religion. Yeah. And the soul and everything. And every time that comes up, Dr. Michaels is shooting him down. He's the communist. I didn't pick up on that at all, but you're absolutely right. That's one of my favorite things in this movie if you put in the russians as the other side is they're they're portraying donald pleasance's character more of a communist when it comes to religion anyway not that communism is religion but is a but but i hear exactly yeah i hadn't considered that or or even caught picked up on that but that's fascinating man yeah a couple of times uh god the soul Things like that do come up in the film. And it doesn't beat you over the head. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Huh. Interesting. It's actually things that uh, if people were in that situation, they would probably ponder. I mean, if you're seeing 
some of the things that they see, you're wondering, you know, is this all chemical reactions or is there somebody that planned this? I don't know. I mean, that does come up, the conversations that, that specifically come up about God and, and intelligent. They don't call it intelligent design, but I mean, that does right. come up. Uh, and I would imagine if you get a group of people and you're watching basically the the cells go from blue to red being oxygenated, yeah, you can say this is a scientific process. But then in a big group of people, someone's going to say, well, there is an entity that designed this. And the other ones are going to say, no, this is just the way it works. It's science. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And it makes me wonder how that went over in the medical school setting. Me too. Because that always surprises me that they would use some of this as, I, I always I always read that, yeah, they use some of this in medical schools that showed things. And I always wondered if it was, well, this is a popular, what Hollywood might think it is. They didn't, they didn't actually say, oh, this is what the brain actually looks like. Right. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that's how it would go down because obviously, you know, we're not going to have it spot on perfect. I, I think right. they did make it seem kind of alien and foreign-like, though, enough for me to buy it. Oh, yeah, me too. I didn't have a problem with any of that. And one thing that amazes me is when you stop to think the model of the ship going through some of these scenes is five feet long. That just just imagine that. That's how big these sets are. These sets were huge. Yes. I mean, it's nothing like they do today, you know, with CGI and green screens and all this other stuff that they, they can do now. This was a process. This was – it took over a year to shoot, I think I read somewhere. I think almost two years. Yeah, just that it took so long because the sets were huge and to make people look like they were swimming or floating, you know, they had to hang them from the, the ceiling and shoot slow motion and, and that takes longer too. And Did you notice in the opening credits, flying sequences by? Yeah. And it's, it's like, I'm thinking the first time, flying sequences? That's the thought yeah, that I had. a lot of wire work That's in this movie. the exact thought, that thought I had was, I thought, this was all in the body. So I could see maybe, you know, swimming, you know, that sort of thing. Um, don't know why I didn't think that, no, they didn't put them in a tank, you idiot. They didn't. <laughs> so there's a few scenes that are actually in water when they use the smaller miniatures. But yeah. most of the time, especially when you see the crew outside of the ship, that's all wire work and really well done. I mean, there's a couple spots that you can see the wires, especially on the Blu-ray. But it's it's few and far between. Yeah, I imagine that's the case. It's kind of hard sometimes when they restore a movie like this because you end up seeing stuff that was never picked up by the camera. Right. You know, and by design. I mean, these effects were designed not to be seen by the camera or the human eye. But you go in and you start restoring them and you have what a lot of us call the War of the Worlds problem <laughs> where you see all yep. the wires. Which is too bad. And there's also some matting issues, especially when they show the pilot in his little bubble window. There's a lot of matting artifacts that you can see. Yeah, if you're for yeah, it. that's true. You can see that for sure. But this movie was made in the '60s. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, and, and it's not it's not one of those things that you know, as monster kids, again, we're not like, well, you know, we can see the mat lines and the wires. So, no, we don't care. Yeah, we accept it because that's part of it. You know, that's part of the charm. Exactly. It's definitely part of the charm. And when I'm into this movie and, and into the story, I don't even see that stuff anymore. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And even though this was, this was a first time viewing for me, I was right there. I'm like, yeah, okay. 
yeah, the mat lines don't look that great. And I've seen better on a Disneyland theme ride, but you know, whatever <laughs> it works for me, man. So, yeah. Speaking of Disney, <laughs> See, I wondered when we we're going to get, I, I set that up for you, man. Yeah, that's right. So for listeners who don't know, Scott is one of the co-muckety-mucks, high-muckety-mucks at the Disney Indiana podcast, uh, one of the best Disney podcasts out there. And uh, he and his wife, Tracy, talk about Disney stuff, including theme parks. And you know quite a bit about this kind of stuff. I'm, yeah. I'd say he's an expert and uh, <laughs> at least more expert than anybody I know. Um, <laughs> and, and there's two pretty good um, relations in this movie to Disney. Uh, the first is the director, Richard Fleischer. He directed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yes, which we've talked about here on the show with Scott and Tracy Yep, years ago. Check the archives. Which is not really surprising when you think about you know, underwater scenes and the body scenes. They could be similar in, in the way that you plan the shots out and everything. So I can see where somebody that's proved himself like that would be a good choice to do a movie like this. Which came out first, uh, 20,000 Leagues, right? I believe so. Oh, yeah, it would came out in the 50s. We just talked about the yeah. Rally Awards. Anyway. But the one thing, and before I talk about the other one, what did you think of the look of the submarine? See, part of me wants to just answer the question, and part of me is like trying to figure out where you're going with this. So, <laughs> No, I just want to know what you think of, of the cool. look of I the... mean, it looked less submarine to me and more like a ship of some sort, a flying ship of some sort. Oh, but, definitely. Yeah. It, what, what I thought was amazing is the full-size one that they built, the interior is actually inside that ship. Oh, really? That way they, yeah, that way they could take shots from the outside of the ship and you see in, the actors are actually in that full-size ship and everything is in there. Oh, wow. And it was built in such a way that, that, that some of the parts of it could be removed so the camera could get in. Wow. That, that ship, I love the design of the whole ship. The inside, the way that that central column has the escape hatch, it has the radio area, it has all the charts. Yeah. And the way all the chairs are hidden so they can get them out of the way as they're prepping the ship or whatever. They're all hidden underneath. There was a lot of thought that went into the building of that ship. I agree. And that was all designed by Harper Goth. Okay. Now, Harper Goth is also, he's a Disney legend, which is an actual Disney term. Uh, if you've done a whole bunch for the company, you, you actually get to be entered into the Disney legends. And he not only designed this ship... He designed uh, the Nautilus from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He helped design Main Street USA at Disneyland. And he helped design the Jungle Cruise ride. He worked with Walt Disney for 40-some years. He actually met Walt Disney for the first time in a hobby shop when they both tried to buy the same model train set. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but not only did he do all this work designing things for Disney. He was also a musician and played with the jazz band that Disney, a lot of the animators started called Firehouse 5 Plus 2. Okay. So he was multi-talented. I could see a lot of, for lack of a better term, Disney-isms in the uh, design of everything here. Oh, yeah. That makes sense to me. Not only did he design the ship, he designed that cart that they manipulate, the universal manipulator, mm -hmm. that cart... That uh, basically like, like a claw that would pick up stuff that were miniaturized. Right. He designed that. He also designed the ray gun. Oh, okay. I like the design of the, the laser gun, right? I like yeah. the design. I like how that looks. I want one. <laughs> yeah, he, des he designed all that. Uh, they also built several different models of the ship. There was the full-size one. 
there was a couple that were around five feet, and then they went all the way down to they had a couple that were an inch and a half. Hmm. The one that you see when they do the first level of miniaturization and then it gets picked up by that manipulator, that's the one and a half inch model. Okay. The one that they drop into the, the oversized syringe. Which was really cool. <laughs> yeah. What I read is, this is funny. They use that one in the whirlpool scene. When they first get injected, there's there's an area where they go into this whirlpool where they go from a vein to an artery mm-hmm. or an artery to a vein. Yeah. And they wanted to create that whirlpool. And they, on the 20th Century Fox prop department, they had an oversized champagne glass that was used for another movie. And they used that by putting water and different things in it and shaking it around to simulate the whirlpool. (laughs) Well, they had the one and a half inch model in there that they were filming. They had two of them. After they were filming, they set one up on a windowsill to dry. And a crow stole it. (laughs) No one knows whatever happened to it. The crow took it. (laughs) Ended up in a nest somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere. (laughs) Or a crow put it on eBay later and then... (laughs) (laughs) The way, you know, the way they did like the stuff floating in the water, mm-hmm. that's all like Vaseline <laughs> and vas- stuff that wouldn't mix with water. Oh. And they would put it in there and it would float around. It sort of looked like a lava lamp would behave. Oh, okay. And that's how they created the stuff in the water. Okay. In the bloodstream. I thought it looked great. I mean, I, I have no complaints whatsoever over how this looked at all. I really like when they went to the lung and you see all of those, what they thought. So there's a whole bunch of rocks in there. You know, they don't come right out and say it, but I'm guessing the patient was a smoker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got that too. I thought, again, that's really fascinating. I do think you know, there are a couple things here and there that they bring up like that that make me think, okay, the rocks are going to come up later and they don't. They don't. But it's a neat little detail. That footage was actually used in an anti-smoking PSA in the early 70s. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of neat, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just flat out cool, man. I, there's a lot about this movie that is just flat out cool. And I can see why it would pull you in because of, of the things happening in the story. And well, again, like I said, the story is not super deep, but the journey itself no. is really fascinating. One thing, unless you lo- really look at this, you might not notice the film is about an hour and 36 minutes long. Mm-hmm. They get injected into the body at 36 minutes, there's an hour left. I saw that, and I wonder, <laughs> was that on purpose? I don't know. And and if so— Or was it a happy accident? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like one of those happy accident things, but if it was on purpose, good on them. Yeah. I don't know how they pulled it off, but— <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a cool little little feature. I don't Like I said, I don't know if it was planned or not, but it's still pretty cool. Yeah. No, it's there's a lot about this movie that's just pretty cool, and not just, you know, the— Oh, hell out. You know, I mean, yeah. as much as they did even try to play that up a little bit in the promotional materials, one of the first things Scott said to me before we started recording was, <laughs> did you see the pinup shot? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they did have a, a shot of her nude. You don't see anything but nude promoting the film. And, you know, if you got it and you're comfortable using it, then use it, girl, go for it, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more to it than this, just that. Oh, definitely. And I also like the fact that, She's not there just for eye candy. She actually works on the laser gun. Mm-hmm. She's more of a, a technician. She knows 
her stuff. She's not there just to get into a scrape, get scared, and be rescued. Granted, of anybody who needs to get into a scrape and gets rescued, it's her. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I was a little disappointed by, if I'm being honest. But, yeah. you know, it's one of those things, I guess. Yeah, that scene doesn't really add much to the whole story or the plot, other than to showcase Raquel Welch. Yeah. <sighs> Which is too bad, but, you know, again, it is what it is. It's part of the part of the deal, I guess. The time that it was made, and I will admit, when I was younger, that was definitely a, a point in this film's favor. Sure. And, well, and, you know, I mean, we acknowledge it. That's the thing. We're not just kind of glossing over it. We're acknowledging that that's what it was, and that's what it was used for, and did it work? Did it take away from the film? I don't know. But it is what it is. And and I think we just have to kind of move on from there and accept it. And Yeah, and, and enjoy it if you're into that kind of thing. But the movie's got so much more than just that to give. Oh, yeah. You know, and that, that's so much more to offer. That's the thing. If the movie didn't have much more than that, if it was just relying on that, well, then maybe we wouldn't be talking about it here. I don't know if I would want to, but it does offer more than just that. I feel like I kind of backed us into a corner there and then tried real hard <laughs> to get us out of it. <laughs> I don't know how successful I was. <laughs> Listeners, you tell me. <laughs> well, we've already talked a little bit about Donald Pleasance. Yes. What did you think when it was finally overtly shown that, yeah, he's the saboteur? At that point, like, yeah, okay, of course he is. I was wondering how they were going to do the reveal. I, I didn't know it was going to be him up until that point. In fact, at first I thought, there was a part of me that thought maybe it's the ship pilot because we spend the least amount of time with him interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. So maybe because we're not really connecting with him as an audience, maybe he will be the guy. He seems like he's there just to pilot the ship. He, mm-hmm. cause, well, he designed the ship too, we learn. Right. In the very early, uh, Captain Bill Owens uh, William Redfield. So I thought maybe at first it was him, but otherwise, yeah, when it was Pleasance, like, of course, it's Donald Pleasance. He's shifty. I like the fact that, yeah, the whole time he's trying to sabotage it, but he's not trying to kill anybody. No. He's trying to sabotage the ship, and every time something happens, that something goes wrong, he's like, first thing, we have to abort the mission. And that's what he's wanting. He's wanting to abort them. And when they figure out that they're in the veins instead of the arteries, and they can't get to their destination without going through the heart and they've already set up that the pressure in the heart's going to just smash the ship. We got to leave. There's no way. And then of course they figure out a way to get through. Right. He is and the first he, one to always say, let's, let's just give up. Let's just yep. give up. But I never really associated that with, he's the saboteur. I always just associated that with the whole, I'm claustrophobic that we got at the very beginning of the film. It took me seeing it once and then when it's revealed and then looking back and like, okay, it was there all the time. He's trying all the time, but it's not never been, you could see it in other ways too, but mm-hmm. they were laying the, the seeds for it. But then, you know, they finally get to the, the blood clot. They've repaired the laser. So they go out to try to fix it. And of course he tries the very last time. We don't have enough time. We only have like four minutes left. And uh, so he goes out, the, the doctor and his assistant and Grant all go out. And that's when Dr. Michaels does his last ditch thing where he finally is going to kill the patient and probably kill everybody on, their, on, yeah, it, on the way it of doing it. It doesn't become a suicide mission until the end and he starts getting desperate. Yep. Yeah. And one of the things I was watching one of the behind the scenes videos and they were talking about this scene and they were talking about the death of Donald Pleasance 
And basically in the movie, it's white white blood cells are dissolving the ship. And there's a scene because he's up in the, the bubble top and the white blood cells eat through the bubble top and then they fall on him and start dissolving him. And the uh, the guy that the special effects guy, he's a modern special effects guy. I didn't recognize the name, but he said, yeah, Donald Pleasant's death by soap suds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is sort of kind of what it looks like, but still, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because he's, he's trapped. Uh, Grant actually tries to save him, but just can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I got a question for you. Yeah. Everybody gets out. Uh-huh. Did the patient survive? You know, they don't really say, do they? No, they don't. I would assume so. I would assume not. Really? Well, even though the ship, did it completely dissolve before it got big again? The ray oh, gun was dropped. Oh, oh, oh. Well, when they bring them back out, though, they're it's just the people, right? It's just the people. See, and I got hung up on, boy, it sure sucks that they have to. Man, I don't know. <laughs> that That's one of the issues Isaac Asimov had when he wrote the novelization. Oh, okay. Because there was things left. Another thing that he brought up was in the beginning, they shrink the hypodermic needle with all the saline solution in it. Didn't it get big again? It would have to. I would think so. In the book, they actually coax the white blood cells to follow them out the eye. And then the ship, what's left of it and everything, and, and Dr. Michaels all get big in the operating room. Hmm. That was one of the big issues he had with the story. Okay. You know, they get out and then there's just, they get to normal size and everybody's just kind of celebrating and then credits roll. There's, <laughs> there's no more dialogue. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like a hammer movie. <laughs> yeah. That's true, right? <laughs> it just kind of stops. Yep. <laughs> Which I don't have a problem with. That's fine. No. It's not like you really need a lot of, uh, I guess, decompression at this point. Um, it is one thing that I see in a lot of, and not that I watch a lot of modern horror anymore or that sort of thing, but I feel like you get to the end of a lot of these horror movies or science fiction movies or, or whatever, and you get to the end and the heroes get out, but there's never that follow-up of how they reintegrate into the <laughs> into the reality again. Well, that and my question about did the patient survive, really the patient's a MacGuffin. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that's not It doesn't really matter. The story is the voyage. Yeah. The reason this was shown in medical school and not at the CIA, for example, is because it's not about the Russian <laughs> or the or the Soviet or the, the other. You know, it's not about that. So, good point. Do I think he survived? Well, I'd like to think so. But, yeah, maybe maybe not now that we're talking about it. Yeah. It could be argued either way. It could be argued that the, the blood cells dissolved it down small enough that it didn't matter. Interesting, but now I want to kind of read the book too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he uh, Isamoff also had a problem with the way that they refilled the air tanks in the lungs. Well, that was a little. <laughs> We're just going to hold the nozzle open, and uh, yeah, every time he breathes, there's going to be rushing of air in here. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, to a lay person that kind of works maybe. Yeah. But it's Asimov. For me, it worked because, you know, I was caught up in the movie and I was like, okay, yeah, there's air in the lungs. Makes sense. Sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm glad I watched it. Now, you said a couple of things when we were first talking about it. There, There's an animated series that I've not seen. Was this a, a regular, like, Saturday morning cartoon thing? It's something that I had not seen until recently. I actually um, had not seen it, not really known about it, because it was only on for one year on ABC. Okay. And it completely changes. It's still called Fantastic Voyage. But instead of what we see here, it's like an all-star crew. There's a, uh, a military, you know, like special forces type guy. There's a, a nerdy technician. There is a, for lack of a better term, a Doctor Strange type guy who's into the mystic arts. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Where's a turban? Oh, well, of course. When did this come out? When did the series come out? Early 70s, like 71. Okay, yeah, of course. <laughs> and a female doctor. And their job is to investigate unknown issues. So I watched the first two episodes. The first one is when they put the team together. Mm -hmm. And they also explain the miniaturization process. In the cartoon, they can stay small for 12 hours. So they run a test where they get injected into one drop of seawater. And there's this whole living, like there's a big, huge sea monster that they have to fight. And, and in the second episode... There's a spaceship, a rocket, coming back to Earth, and these crystals get sucked in through an air vent, which I didn't know rockets had air vents. <laughs> and <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> and these crystals attacked the astronauts and extracted water. So water? No, air out of them. And so they send the uh, the Fantastic Voyage crew, and they're in the Voyager. They build a new ship called the Voyager, and it looks... Nothing like the one in the movie. And they can also, using radio waves, transport it somewhere. So they could shrink him in the lab and then transport him by radio waves up to the rocket to investigate. Oh. It's okay. It's not great. But my favorite thing about it is, and I'm sure Monster Kids are very familiar with Aurora model kits. Yeah. What is the most rare Aurora model kit? Is this? Well, it's the Voyager. Huh. And it was announced that they were going to make a TV show. The movie was popular enough. Aurora wanted to make a model off of the television show. Okay. So they were going to make a model off the Voyager. That makes sense. The problem was by the time they got it done and ready to produce, the cartoon was canceled. Mm. So they did one production run of it and no more. And so now that is the most rare Aurora model kit is the Voyager from the cartoon Fantastic Voyage. Huh. Yeah, and back then it wasn't like, oh, we'll just catch it in syndication or on video or whatever. I mean, it was just, it's gone. It's gone. Today, if you're interested, uh, I think all the episodes are out on YouTube. That's where I watched the two that I did. And one of the things that's really cool, it's done by Filmation. Oh, okay. So the voiceover for the opening credits uh -huh. is Ted Knight, <laughs> which is the same voiceover as the Super Friends. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> How many sound effects did you recognize from like the Star Trek animated series? Then? And yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I also got a really strong Super Friends vibe off of it because of Ted Knight. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Filmation did some amazing work, man. Yep. They were awesome. They, they were the, uh, the backbone of, of my weekends as a kid. <laughs> I, I was probably going to watch another episode or two. It was interesting enough 
to see how they change it. The the little nerdy technician guy is kind of annoying. Mm. But the mystic doctor, he can read minds. He can what communicate. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Why do they have to? <sighs> is he white? I mean, I hate to say it, but is he white? No. Of course he's not. No. Nope. Oh, man. Oh, the 70s. <laughs> there are some things about you that I miss and I love, and there are some things about you I don't. <laughs> that I cringe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How does it compare to the Planet of the Apes animated series? I like the Planet of the Apes better. Really? Okay. The Fantastic Voyage seems to be one where it's a different... They're, they're fighting a different villain every week. I mean, they, they set up in the beginning on the first episode of why they have it because they show a traditional pirate ship, but in modern day uh, attacking the U S Navy. And when the U S Navy tries to retaliate, the ship disappears. <gasps> okay. I'm assuming that's another episode down the line where they're going to investigate that, <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's stuff like that, but it just seems like, okay, we have a different adventure every week. Okay. That's probably how it's going to, going to work out. Something like the super friends. They have a different villain each week. Yeah. Introduced by Ted Knight. <laughs> wow is he still around what's he doing these days i believe he's passed oh uh, that's too bad because it'd be awesome to get him on a podcast because of his voice <laughs> <laughs> yeah another thing that i think was highly influenced on this show and to bring it back to my love of disney mm-hmm. that's where i was about to go yep <laughs> when uh epcot opened up the wonders of life pavilion which was sponsored at one time by metlife They had an attraction in there called Body Wars. Now, Body Wars, for those of you that have been to Disney, is very similar to Star Tours. In fact, it used the same simulators that Star Tours uses. But you would go in and you were entering this company that uh, did the medical research with miniaturization. And they routinely uh, miniaturized people and would send them into the bodies for surgeries and it was so commonplace they're going to send people in to basically go for a tour and you're going to learn how this all works so you go in and your your job is to pick up a scientist who's already in there and she's basically removing a splinter from the inside that's how innocuous this is innocuous (laughs) so you go in and you meet her, and then, of course, in Grand Disney theme park tradition, something goes horribly wrong. You get sucked into the heart, and it zaps all the power, and you end up in the brain, and we're able to maneuver just enough to get shocked by one of the electrical impulses to power the ship, and we're able to escape. The film parts of it was all directed by Leonard Nimoy. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And it's it's it was a fun ride. So you did do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I did it many times because I love Star Tours. Uh, the only problem, Star Tours I can do, well, you know, over and over again. You know, it's got all the motion. You're, you're moving around, bouncing around. And I never had a problem with that. Mm-hmm. We actually went to Epcot one Christmas time. And at that time, they'd already closed the Wonders of Life Pavilion. But with Christmas crowds, they reopened it for one week only. And they had Body Wars open. So, of course, we were going to go do that one more time because it's already been announced the whole thing was going to close. Right. Unfortunately, the air conditioning in the simulator didn't work. So it was very hot. So the combination of all the motion, and there's a lot of herky-jerky motion, especially like when you're going through the heart because it's going back and forth and everything. Mm -hmm. It was one of those after we were done, it was 
about eight o'clock at night. So it was, it was finally a little cool at Christmas time. We just kind of got out and sat down and wa- people watched for a while until the stomachs calmed down. <laughs> oh, really? So was that yeah. bad, huh? Only because I think the heat compounded it. Because I remember riding it well before then and not having any problems. But that was definitely a similar thing as Fantastic Voyage. But now it's, it's oh, we do it so often. It's kind of a pleasure cruise. Not a pleasure cruise, but a, you know you can go and, and take a ride on it. Right. Which was fun. And when they closed it, they actually have taken the simulators out and reconfigured them for Star Tours, I th- think, in Tokyo. But I'm not 100% sure on that. So it's it's no longer there. The whole the pavilion still exists, and they open it up every once in a while for uh, meeting space. And when they're having like the flower and garden, they have the festival center in there. But none of the attractions are in there anymore. Hmm. Well, that's too bad. And uh, one other thing that <laughs> I've always loved that is influenced by this is here the, we go the, <laughs> the Simpsons Treehouse of Terror episodes. <laughs> There's an episode called "In the Body of the Boss." Okay. The Simpsons as a family go to some sort of scientific convention and Professor Frank is there and he's showing this giant oversized capsule that has, you know, if you remember Contact, it was a big capsule that had little balls in it. It looked like one of those capsules and somehow Maggie gets in there, gets shrunk down and fed to Mr. Burns. So once they figure out where Maggie is... Professor Frank also has this ship that he can shrink down and inject in there so they can rescue Maggie before she's eaten by the stomach acid. (laughs) At one point, the Simpsons are in there and they have to get out of the ship. And (laughs) so they're putting on the (laughs) bathing suits. Starting to giggle and such. Go ahead. And Marge's outfit is incredibly revealing and skin tight, just even more so than what Raquel Welch has to wear in here. And she turns to Homer and says, why does my outfit have to be so revealing? And Homer looks at her. Well, it turns a normal voyage into a fantastic voyage. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but they end up saving Maggie. And then once they put Maggie on board, there's not enough uh, fuel to actually escape Mr. Burns's body. So they have to leave Homer behind. <laughs> and then Homer grows big back to his normal size Inside Mr. Burns and his head pops out of the shoulder and not, not, not completely out like the, he's still in the body, but the you can see the outline of Homer in there. So it sort of reminds me of the thing with the two heads at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was in season 16. Okay. And in all of that, I want to thank you for not trying to do the Marge Simpson voice. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. I, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I never had a chance to do Body Wars at Disney. Um but I do remember the one and only time I went to Disneyland as a kid. What was the name of the ride where you got shrunk down? Uh, Adventures Through Inner Space. Yeah. So I do remember that specifically. Yeah, you didn't go into a body. No, you didn't. You just kind of shrunk went into down a snowflake, I believe. Yeah. And I the only thing I remember about it, as because like I said, I was very young, was the bit where you go underneath a microscope and you look up and see the eye looking down at you. Yeah. I remember that. And I think you can find that on YouTube or somewhere now since that attraction is no longer around. I'm jealous that you got to experience that. I never did. Oh, wow. Uh, it was replaced by Star Tours. And the original Star Tours, just uh, aside here, uh, when you were in the hangar before you took off, the Mighty Microscope, which was what you saw in Adventures Through Interspace, was actually in the 
hangar bay. Oh, is in it Star really? Wars. It was kind of a tribute to the former attraction there. Well, that's kind of cool. Yep. Yeah, I remember that pretty distinctly. Nothing else I remember, but <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah, there was a part where you would go into the microscope and see the eye, and then as you got back to normal size, mm-hmm. there was a place that you would pass, and it looked like an, another part of the ride, but the, the ride vehicles were tiny going by you. Yeah. Oh, okay. I do remember that, too. I remember that, too, now. And you could see the little people inside there. But but I definitely think Body Wars took its inspiration from Fantastic Voyage. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm not surprised that Disney picked up on, you know, and that there was a cross-pollination of talent, you know, that mm-hmm. people who worked on films also worked on the Imagineering and that sort of thing, especially at that point. I don't know if you see that oh, yeah. as much now. I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I do find that fascinating. And to bring it full circle, this is a 20th Century Fox production. So now who owns this film? Oh, no. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> And, uh, of course, we mentioned this when we talked about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The director is actually the son of Mox. Uh, is the son Max. of Mike's. Mike's? Max. Max. <laughs> the director is actually the son of Max Fleischer, who was, I wouldn't say rival, but a competing or another animator yep. when Walt Disney was coming up. He didn't have anything to do with Disney. So I think that's kind of neat, too. Yep. All in all, I enjoyed the film eventually. Like I said, at first, I was like, come on. <laughs> how am I going to do an episode of monster kid radio where I don't <laughs> like a movie? Because I always try to find something positive to think about or to talk about. And, uh, I was worried. I was really worried we were going to get to that point with this one. But once things start happening and you start to enjoy the, just the visualness of it. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. Some yeah, of the, the scenes board. inside the body and the way it's lit. Yeah. So thumbs up for me. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. When you first started saying that you were having problems with it, I can see that. It is kind of slow in the build, beginning. But I, th- I think overall, once you watch it a few times, that stuff is fascinating in its own way because of what they're setting up. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely go back and see that now and go back and kind of watch that and appreciate that now. And this film did win two Oscars. Nominated for a handful. And one, two. Yeah, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, and Best Effects, Visual Effects in 1967. What is it with talking about award winners on MKR? I mean, that's <laughs> don't do a lot of that. So that's kind of cool. If you're interested in that, that Blu-ray that I have, uh, it actually won a Saturn Award uh, for Best uh, DVD Blu-ray Special Edition in 2014. Very cool. Well, I'll put that on the wish list. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a good one, man. This was a good one. Another winner. If you're watching it for the first time, if you can make it to when they inject in the body, I think that's when the, for, for first time viewers is when the film really kicks into gear. Definitely agree with you there. So you keep knocking it out of the park, man. Planet of the Apes, this one, what are you going to bring to me next? Um, uh, we've got some other project that, uh, that we got going on and I don't know how out of the park that movie is. <laughs> well, we've already <laughs> talked, we, we've both seen that one true that's true that's the thing yeah i'm i'm i like this reversal of 1951 down place where you're bringing me the movies i'll have to give it some thought about what to bring next i don't have anything off the top of my head all right well you know we talked about disney indiana a second ago disneyindiana.com is where you're going to find scott and his lovely wife tracy every other week talking about all things disney theme parks films the acquisition of 20th Century Fox, all of it. You know, it's yes. all there. And uh, they've been knocking it out of the park for how long now? This past July was a 10 years uh, anniversary for the show. Which is crazy, man. And uh, I 
going to assume that this episode is coming out in the November time frame. We're November probably going to yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, skip the Halloween season. And uh, one of the things that's going to be pretty exciting is uh, Tracy and I will be covering our trip to take an Adventures by Disney tour called Backstage Magic. We're going to get to visit Jim Henson Studios. We're going to get to visit the Dolby Theater where the Oscars are, the Chinese Theater we're going to visit. We're going to go to Walt Disney Studios, Walt Disney Imagineering, and we're going to take a behind-the-scenes tour of both Disneyland and Disney California Adventure, seeing how some of the rides operate, and we'll also visit uh, Walt's apartment above the fireplace. So we'll be covering all that. Above the what? Above, I'm sorry. There's a podcast <laughs> called that above the fire station. <laughs> sorry about that. But all of that will be probably starting in November, uh, our trip report. And we're actually going to spend some time and we're going to go to Universal Studios and do a VIP tour there. Uh, we're going to uh, try to visit a couple of uh, other studios. I'm hoping to get to uh, maybe the uh, Warner Brothers studio, uh, Sony we're looking at, and we're also going to go down the coast to San Diego and check out Legoland and possibly the zoo down there. So all that's coming up on our show. Are you going to talk about Universal and all that other stuff on your show too? Uh, probably. Uh, we have in the past because we've, okay. we've visited Universal a couple of times. One of the things that uh, is exciting for uh, Monster Kid Radio fans is the area where they stage us for this VIP tour mm-hmm. has the most gorgeous original Phantom of the Opera poster um i've ever seen and oh, it's like boy. takes up most of a wall it's huge oh did you have you and you've been there yeah we've done the vip tour once before have you taken pictures of it i did but i didn't count for the glare of the glass and so you can't oh, really no. see it so that's one of the things i want to do is get a, a better picture of this yeah, i was gonna say make sure you let us you know, <laughs> share that man we need to see it it is pretty cool right on and uh, one of the stops that we get to do as a tour for those of you that have been there, it goes through the back lot area, but it doesn't stop. If you take the VIP tour, you actually could stop and, and get out. So we got out uh, and got to go up to the courthouse, the Back to the Future courthouse and everything. But uh, we also, uh, 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 uh. You're on Monster Kid Radio. Back to the Future courthouse, that same square appeared in the Monster Squad. So come on now. But I've never seen the Monster Squad. Yeah, but I've it's seen Monster Back Kid Radio. Come on now. <laughs> But what's really cool is we get to stop in the area. It's not the original set, but they've rebuilt it because of a fire. Right. But where Dracula and Frankenstein, uh, were, the originals oh, were filmed, some of you, those little you take Europe- pictures. I'm not just asking you. <laughs> I'm telling you. Pictures, video, <laughs> chip a piece out of the wall for me, whatever. <laughs> so I, I get to, I get to walk on those sets again. It, unfortunately, it's not the original ones because they they burned, but recreations of them. That'll be awesome. I'm eager to hear all about it, man. So yeah, that'll probably be starting late November and probably going through December because we'll probably have several episodes talking about this trip. If we can make it happen, scheduling wise, you and Tracy are also always welcome to come here to tell us about your Universal adventures. You know, when it comes to the monster stuff, I'm sure we would be up for it. This is a big trip. Uh, we're actually celebrating. A lot of things, the 10-year anniversary of our podcast, uh, this calendar year, Tracy and I passed 25 years of marriage. Notice you mentioned the podcast first in this lineup. <laughs> well, it was already mentioned, so. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, and then before the year ends, I turned 50 years old, and I also passed 10 years of working at my current job. So it was kind of like, we need to do something to celebrate all these milestones. They're all nice round numbers. So. Okay. 
I'm trying to come up with a joke here and I got nothing. <laughs> I figured you'd do something about the 50. I've, that's the one I figured you'd talk about. You know, I, um, so I'm excited to hear all about the trip, man. It should be a lot of fun. Check us out over at uh, DisneyIndiana.com or find us on iTunes. There's a link in the website over there in the links section of MonsterKidRadio.net, so follow that. Of course, you're going to hear Scott in the, uh, I believe at this point, the episodes will have started, I'm hoping, maybe, fingers and tentacles crossed, the amazing Plan 9 by 9 podcast. With yep. amazing backers. Yeah. Oh, good. That's why it's amazing, Scott. Exactly. <laughs> it has nothing to do with you and I on no, being on the show. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Also, uh, hopefully, by now, I will have gotten everything together and 1951 Down Place will be back. So Awesome. Still on post-production on the most recent recording that we did six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. So, Jekyll yeah. and Sister Hyde. That's right. So this, this has been uh, a lot of fun, Scott. Thank you for doing this, man. I'm glad you dug the movie. That feels like the most flat way to end it, but I think I'm going to end it right there. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. Okay. I'm glad you liked it, dude. Yeah. A couple things to talk about here real quick. DisneyIndiana.com. That's where you find Scott and Tracy where they talk about Disney stuff. We talked a little bit about that. It is a great, solid show incredibly high production values. There's no way they'd be doing that podcast for 10 years if they weren't still having fun doing it. And that fun comes through in every single episode. Go check it out. Also, Scott and I mentioned the 1951 Down Place podcast. I know I keep saying this, but as soon as I get back to Monster Kid Radio Central, I'm going to spend an afternoon finishing up the post-production on the episode covering Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, and I'm going to get that put out through the feed. You can find that at 1951 Down Place Dot com. That will be coming. Now, Scott and I have not made plans to record the next episode of Down Place, but that will be happening soon. He and I are also going to start recording the Plan 9 by 9 podcast, which you can find out about over at Plan 9 by 9. I'm not going to bore you with it, but go check out the website. And the, the 9 is the number 9, not spelled out. Follow the link in the show notes. This was so much fun. And to everybody who talked with me about recording about Fantastic Voyage, and I know there's been a handful of you, Thank you for understanding, for letting me kind of set this one aside for Scott. Not just because it's his birth, not just because it's his birthday, but like I said at the beginning of the chat with Scott, he and I had been planning on this for quite some time. This was a real treat, and yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on that Blu-ray. Scott, thank you, and uh, happy birthday. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, Zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive Vampira, and Thor Johnson as the Walking Dead. Turn off your electro gun! No! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, 
jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. medical precedent for what's happening to you. I, I simply know that you're getting smaller. I want you to stop thinking about us, our marriage. Some awful things might happen. As long as you've got this wedding ring on, you've got me. This is Orson Welles speaking. I have 45 seconds to tell you about something I think you'll remember the longest day you live about a man named Scott Carey. A few months ago, he was six feet, two inches tall and weighed 190 pounds. Today, he's two inches tall and you can hold him in the palm of your hand. Now he lives in a world where he must fight for his life, a world where a friendly house cat is a predatory monster. Incredible, because it's almost beyond imagining. Incredible, because every hour he gets smaller and smaller. Incredible, because every moment the terror mounts. Eh, sorry for the holdup, folks. There seems to be a slow-moving podcast up ahead, so we're going to have to sit here for a spell. Uh, now, uh, you just remain seated with your headphones on, and we'll be right with you. Darn it, the episode was just getting good. Yep, I never missed this show. Now what are we going to do? Well, we could tell folks about our show, the Disney Indiana Podcast. Well, in our bi-weekly episodes... We discuss books, movies, music, theme parks, video games, and whatever else in the Disneyverse we want to talk about. Playful spooks have interrupted our show. Please remain seated in your MP3 mobile. We also like to share audio clips, interviews, and other surprises along the way. If you enjoy all aspects of the mouse, come hang out in Disney, Indiana. You can find us at www.disneyindiana.com or subscribe to our show within iTunes. We are also featured on Reedy Creek Radio on Live365.com and the Disney Community of Tomorrow at d-cot.com. You won't find Disney Indiana on any map. It's a state of mind, or more precisely, a state of heart. Hopefully our podcast won't break down now. Hey, uh, here comes a podcaster. If you would, please exit your MP3 mobile and follow me out of the podcast. Thank you. One of the absolute coolest things that I did last month to celebrate October and all things Halloween was going to the Hollywood Theater with my friends Chris McMillan, Dominique Lamsey's, and Tom Doffel to see the original Phantom of the Opera, the silent film projected on the big screen with a live organ accompaniment that was so 
much fun. It was mind-blowing, breathtaking, and everything else. It was just amazing. And when I found out that they're going to be showing another movie in November, I've already bought my tickets ahead of time. Nosferatu, the original 1922 silent film, will be shown at the Hollywood and again, live organ accompaniment. It's going to be so cool. I'm really looking forward to it. It is a live organ. It's not digital. The sound's going to be coming through the theater's pipes. The Columbia River Theater Organ Society is involved here. And if it's anything like the Phantom of the Opera screening, I know I'm going to have an amazing time. I would love to see you there. If you're in the area, let me know. I'd love to meet you. It's happening on November 24th. That's the Saturday after Thanksgiving at 2 p.m. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the Hollywood Theaters page so that if you want, you can buy your tickets ahead of time as well. I think it's safe to say that it's going to be awesome. And with that, that is the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening and downloading, streaming, sharing the Facebook posts, retweeting the tweets, and doing everything that you do to share your Monster Kid love with either the show or your fellow Monster Kid fans. If you want to be part of the show by sending in your feedback, all you got to do is drop me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail. Our phone number is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. If you have any comments on Fantastic Voyage or any of the other movies we've talked about in the past, I'd love to engage with you here on the show. And any emails that come in, we try to have Brenda on the show to read those emails. So let that be a little extra encouragement to get her involved in the show as well. Unfortunately, she's not with me right now. She's actually back at MKR Central. So, uh, you know, Brenda this week. But next week, if we have email, she'll be there. Also, if you have comments or thoughts on what we're going to be showing next week, I'd love to hear those as well. What are we showing next week? I'm feeling like a little Bale of Lugosi action. How about you? We're going to talk about the movie Night of Terror from 1933. Christopher Page from Orphaned Entertainment and a handful of other podcasts will be joining me next week to break down this film and talk about it. I'm looking forward to it. Night of Terror, it's a fun little movie. Even if Bale is not front and center, his presence is felt through the entire film. And well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So come back next week for that conversation. Of course, you can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. And check this out. There's a link in the show notes where you can go to Amazon and buy your own copy of Fantastic Voyage. And when you do that, because we're an Amazon affiliate, we get a little bit of scratch, just, just a teeny tiny bit. So you're supporting the show that way. Of course, again, big thanks to everybody who supports the show through Patreon, by liking the Monster Kid Radio page on Facebook, by following the Monster Kid Radio Twitter page over on Twitter. It's just awesome to have you guys and gals backing up the show. I wouldn't be doing it for almost 400 episodes if I didn't have you guys. Okay, that's not true. I think I've said this before. I would be sitting around at home just watching monster movies anyway. But knowing that I've got you guys and gals out there listening to the show, well, that's monster gravy, man. Monster Gravy. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song The Man from LOX, the liquid oxygen theme. That is from the self-titled EP release from the Brighton UK surf band, The Adam Jacks. You can find them at theadamjacks.bandcamp.com. They're also 
also on Facebook. I'll make sure there's a link to their Bandcamp page in this week's show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. So you can go and pick up the EP release for yourself. Just make sure you let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Or better yet, if you're in Brighton on December 8th, they are playing at the Prince Albert with the bands Serpent Lungs and Los Fantasticos. So drop by and let them know. Well, Monster Kid Radio said hi. My name's Derek M. Gook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.